Uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in two different places this morning. Uh, the passages will be on the screen, primarily in Matthew 28 and then John 20 and John 21. We're going we're gonna to kind of bounce around a little bit, but we're going to be looking at uh, reactions to the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, it wasn't just one reaction to Christ's resurrection. It wasn't everybody just went, oh my gosh, this is the greatest thing in the world. And everybody kind of jumped in, in the line of faith and, and we've all lived happily ever after uh, since that moment. And there certainly are and could have been and continue to be uh, a wide variety of reactions to what it means to live in the, in the light of Christ's resurrection from that very first day uh, up until now. Uh, and, and the resurrection of Jesus really changes the scope. It changes the, the theological landscape, so to speak. Uh, it's a radical change. The, the, probably the, the best comparison in our day and age is think about life, if you can remember, before 9-11 happened, before the terrorist attacks on the Twin Towers and on the Pentagon. Remember what life was like before that. Remember how we kind of came and went and didn't really think about things like somebody blowing up buildings, uh, somebody coming to American soil uh, and attacking us. Remember that terrible day and going forward, how everything changed. Now when I turn on my news, I look at the bottom to see what, whatever that alert is. You know, it might say orange alert or green alert or I don't, and I don't even know what they mean, but I, I always look to see what, if the colors change. It's just something I do naturally. I remember when the, um, when the anthrax scare came out and people were like wrapping their houses in cellophane. I, I mean, I know it wasn't cellophane. I don't know what the scientific term for it was, but it was like, okay, if we can just kind of, you know, Put glad wrap over our houses, we'll be protected. I mean, just the kind of the craziness of the moment. Remember how easy it was to go through airport before 9-11? I was traveling and I was going from Colorado Springs back to St. Louis the summer after 9-11 and I had a one-way ticket because I had driven out with some folks, driven out to Colorado, was flying home. Well, one-way ticket then was like, you know, that got everybody's attention. So I'm at the ticket counter uh, and getting my ticket and I've got one suitcase and the woman says, I'd like to go through your suitcase with you standing right here. I said, okay, that's fine. So I open up the suitcase, takes everything out, everything back in. Great. And she says, now this gentleman here has a wand and he's going to frisk you and wand you. And that, okay, sure. That's no problem. So I step over to the side, do that. Now I go to go through security. I get, I haven't gone through security. I'm getting ready to go through security. And the woman who takes my ticket says, go over and see that man. He's going to wand you. He's going to frisk you and pat you down. So, okay, I do it the second time. I go through security, and when I'm on the other side of security, I'm grabbed again for the third time. I've traveled like maybe 37 feet. I mean, I just haven't gone very far yet. And for the third time, I, I get the whole routine again. Go down to the gate, sit at the gate. They call our flight. I go to get on the flight. Before, right before I hand my ticket to this woman, a guy grabs and says, come over here, sir. We're going to search you. I said, this will be the fourth time. And he says, we're still going to search you. I said, well, good luck if you can find something that nobody else could find. Now, just as a, a hint for you, if you're traveling, security at the airport, they don't like that kind of jokes. They don't like that kind of sarcasm. And full body cavity searches are less than pleasant. I mean, you just don't want to, you just don't want to get those folks upset with you. But the radical change that's taken place in our country because of that single event, that's the spiritual, uh, the, the resurrection is a spiritual equivalent of that. But how you react to the resurrection, how you live your life in, in light of the fact that Christ has risen from the dead, those reactions vary widely and radically. So we're going to look at those responses. We're going to look at four different passages of Scripture, and we're going to look at four different reactions to the gospel and, and, and the resurrection. My hope is, is that somewhere along the line, you'll engage with us and you'll say, hey, where do I find myself? Uh, how am I reacting to Jesus' resurrection? That's the whole point of the morning, to be able to kind of put our finger on that. But before we do that, let's pray for just a moment.
Lord Jesus, we thank you for uh, the, the reason we're here this morning. Lord, not everybody in this room perhaps believes that, that you have physically resurrected and are alive. Uh, we may be somewhat skeptical or we may be, may be doubting just a bit or not sure whether we should believe it or not or was it just a nice story that has some kind of uh, moral to it like a fable or was it something that really happened? Father, for those of us who have believed maybe for a long time, in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Maybe our faith is somewhat stale. Maybe perhaps this morning the, the absolute power and majesty of the resurrection has lost some of its effectiveness in our lives. So Father, wherever we are in our spiritual journey, we all have one need in common, and that is to know the truth of the resurrection, to know its power, to know its glory in our own lives. Father, you know I can't teach these passages the way they should be taught. You know that what man says is not important. It carries no weight. It is only your holy and perfect word that will survive into eternity. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd move me aside. Forgive my sin. Don't let me stand in the way of what you want us to learn this morning. Lord Jesus, show us these reactions. Show it, show it to us in light of our own hearts and lives that we might understand our lives in the light of the resurrection. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first section of Scripture I'm going to take you to is Matthew 28. We're going to look at the first four verses, first four verses, and then uh, the 11th through the 15th verses as we consider the reaction to the resurrection of living in denial, uh, to having a reaction of the, of the resurrection, of not wanting to have anything to do with it or even acknowledging that it happened. Matthew 28, uh, several verses. Now, after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on top of it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. It means they just they fainted dead away was maybe how we would say it today. But the angel said to the... Excuse me, I'm going to skip down now to verse 11. Uh, while they were going, while the women were leaving uh, the, uh, the, the cemetery... Behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they had assembled the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has spread among the Jews to this day. Now, we don't know anything else about these particular soldiers other than what is recorded uh, in this particular passage. We don't know whether the guards were married. Uh, we don't know whether they were single men. We don't know if they had children. Uh, we don't know if they had spent any time in and around Jesus, had, had heard any of his teaching, had seen uh, any of his miracles. What we do know about them is that they're Ro Roman legionnaires. They were lifers. They were professional soldiers. They weren't in for a year or two to pay for their college education and then move on with, with the career they really want. These guys were professional soldiers. They were, they were the best of the best. The Roman legions had conquered the world. They were not men with whom you trifled. The other thing you know about Roman legionnaires in this particular setting is when you were put in charge of guard duty, whether you were guarding a location as they were, whether you were guarding a prisoner, you guarded it with your life. In other words, if you failed, 
Let's say that you lost a prisoner. Let's say that a prisoner escaped from your custody. Uh, you would exchange your life for the life that you lost, the life that got away. Literally, physically, you would be put to death if you lost a prisoner. You know, the news comes on and we read that there was a jailbreak someplace and a couple guys overpowered a guard and stole, you know, a van and, and drove off and got away. And, and unless you live within two miles of the prison, you pretty much go on with your day. <laughs> you know, you don't really think that much of it. And the guards maybe are reprimanded and maybe they get in a little bit of trouble. But nobody says, okay, now you have to go to prison. Now you have to forfeit your life because you've lost this, this prisoner. These guards lose the prisoner. He's not alive yet, <laughs> they, they don't think, but he's gone. Now they have to go back and report it. And the way in which he was lost is they're telling the story is, well, we had everything under control and things were going well, right up until there was this bright light and an angel, and then I got so scared I fainted. That's not, as a legionnaire, that's not a story you want to lead with. It doesn't make you look real good. There's, there's a young dad um, at Green Tree, and they just became moms, mom and dad. Uh, a few weeks ago. And he went into the delivery room. Uh, and there was this bride getting ready to deliver this beautiful baby. And he fainted dead away. <laughs> it's not what you want to do in the delivery room. He actually hit his head and, and could have been very seriously injured. He's okay. Uh, but, you know, I saw him Friday night at the Good Friday service. And he finally was able to smile a little bit about it. But you think about being so scared that you literally fall down with fright and you pass out. And they go back and they report this. Some of the guards show up at the Jewish ruling council to the religious elite of their day. And now the, the, the Jews who have put Jesus to death, the ones who, who, who had demanded that he be crucified, they now come face to face with the first, first um, hand eyewitnesses of the account of the resurrection. Same day, they've seen what's happened. What is their response? How, how do the Jewish leaders respond? They offer a bribe. They say, we can't possibly let this word get out. We know what he said, we know what he claimed, but we're rejecting it and we want, we're going to pay you money so you don't tell anybody else what you've just told us. That is denial in its purest form. Now what was at stake here? Well, there's a couple things. One is that they were, they were men of power. They were men of prestige. And if Jesus was proved to be true, they had rejected everything that Jesus had said. Jesus said he was a Messiah. They said, no, you're not. Jesus said, I'm from God. They said, you're from the devil. Jesus said, I've come that you may have life. And they say, we don't want to have anything to do with you. Now, if Jesus really has come back from the dead, their corporate authority over the people of Israel is gone. They're discounted as men who don't know the truth. But I think there's even a more fundamental uh, aspect to this denial that's going on. Because if Jesus's claims are true, it's not just their corporate authority, but it's their personal authority as well. Because if Jesus really is the Son of God, it forces the question, who gets to play God in my life? That's the question before you this morning. It's the question before me this morning. If Jesus got out of the grave and he is the Son of God, then he gets to play God and I don't. I'm not the captain of my soul. I'm not the master of my own destiny. But rather, I must submit my will to his. I must put my trust and my faith in him. The Pharisees' denial on the day of the resurrection... And the present day denials of Jesus' resurrection are not just intellectual exercises, but rather it's a rejection of Jesus as Lord. I won't bow to him. Perhaps this morning you see yourself living in denial of the resurrection. But there's also another way to live uh, post-resurrection, and that is living in doubt. Look at John chapter 20, uh, verses 24 through 31. 
Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the marks of the nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Thomas's problem with doubt was not one of proximity. You know, maybe you've heard somebody tell a story secondhand about something amazing that happened, and you go, you know, I'm not sure I'm buying that. I'm not sure I believe that. Uh, the day that 9-11 happened, I was at my office. I called home to Cindy. And, and Andy Parm, actually, who had his office upstairs above me, um, came in and said, I think a plane had hit the, one of the Twin Towers. And we're thinking, you know, a little prop plane and who could be, you know, who could get so far off course to have something like that happening. And we started to find out, no, it was, a, it was a large, it was a jet. So I called home. I said, Cindy, turn on the TV because I think something terrible happened. She turns on the TV and says, oh my gosh, another plane just hit the second tower. And I said, you've got to be mistaken. That can't be right. That, that, is, that can't be possible that two planes would, would, this would happen on the same day. You must be seeing a replay. And that's what Thomas says to his friends. Guys, you, you're sorely mistaken. There's no way I can possibly believe this. But it wasn't because he was far away from Jesus. Thomas was one of the 12. He had heard Jesus talk about his death. He had heard Jesus talk about his resurrection. I think that Thomas's doubt was really to protect against the disappointment that he felt in his own heart. After all, Thomas had been with Jesus for three years. Thomas was crushed. He was, he was spiritually demolished when Jesus was led away and when he subsequently went to the cross and died. Thomas had, had staked all of his hopes and all of his dreams on the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. And now those dreams have been dashed. But not only are his dreams gone, but he had to be humiliated. Think about it this way. What if you went out and told everybody that you knew, all your friends, all your loved ones, all the people that were close to you, I found the Messiah. I, I found the Son of God and I'm going to give my life completely to him. And I'm going to follow him. Who is he? Well, he's this little, he used to be a carpenter. <laughs> he used to be a construction, but he's gone into the ministry. And so now, you know, now I'm going to, that seems like, but I think he's God. I'm going to follow him. You know what your family would say? You know, maybe you've been drinking a little too much of that Kool-Aid. You know, maybe you need to rethink this proposition. And you spent three years of your life following him, only to have him destroyed by the religious leaders of your day. Think of how humiliating it would be to go back home and to say, well, maybe I was wrong. I think Thomas's spirit is crushed and his thinking goes along the lines of why make it worse? Why, why offer any kind of false hope? I don't care that you guys say you've seen him. I will not be fooled again. I'm going to set the bar low so I won't be disappointed. And Thomas really becomes the first genuine skeptic of the resurrection. That same thinking abounds today in our generation. I read this quote the other night at our Good Friday service, but, but uh, Robert Funk who is uh, the guy who started the Jesus Seminar, which is a, a group of guys who got together one day and said, you know, we're going to tell you what really should be in the Bible and what shouldn't be. Uh, and they didn't really do any research, and they really didn't do any historical study, and they really didn't do any archaeological study. They just decided they would pick and choose. And I'm not, uh, I'm not exaggerating their lack of, of studying this. But here's, here's Funk's uh, comment about the crucifixion. 
The story of arresting Christ, trying to crucify him, is mostly the work of imagination. And he goes on to disclaim, therefore, the uh, resurrection as well. There are skeptics in our day and age who are living in opposition to faith. They're thinking, as I am the final arbiter, I am the final authority on truth. Well, this ends up at the same place as denial. It might sound a little bit more polite. It might be, you know, I've really thought carefully about these things, but you end up in the same place. You end up rejecting the resurrection, which means you're rejecting Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior. Friends, this gets very personal very quickly. You can't talk about this in general terms of theology. Jesus claims to have died for your sins Scripture claims that he rose from the dead so that he defeated death and hell for you. What are you going to do about that? What is my decision going to be? What is your decision going to be? Some of us are living in denial. Some of us are living in doubt. There's a third reaction to the resurrection, and that is living with shame. Just one chapter up, John chapter 21, first three verses. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm, said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, and then like it always is every time the disciples go fishing, but that night they caught nothing. Uh, and then skip ahead to verse 15. The night has passed. Jesus has helped them catch a bunch of fish. They've recognized Jesus. They're sitting on the shore. They're having breakfast. And now this conversation begins. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He's pointing to the other folks around him. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Technically, he was, if you, if you translated that literally, he said, Simon, son of John, do you even like me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you even like me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I, and then Peter uses the exact same word, Lord, you know that I like you. He's finally honest. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. You have to understand the background of this conversation. Peter had said to Jesus on the night he was betrayed, everybody else might run away, Lord, but not me. I will stand by your side to the death. And then Jesus is arrested. Peter runs away, but he kind of creeps back in. He's standing outside the place where they're having the trial. He's out by the fire. And three times, three different people ask him the question, weren't you with Jesus? And every time he says no. The third time he was asked, he was asked by a little servant girl, maybe 12-year-old girl, okay? Here's big strapping fisherman Peter. And this little girl says, hey, weren't you with Jesus? And Peter calls down curses from heaven. He's so afraid. He says, I never knew the man. Peter's denial was equivalent to self-preservation. He turned his back on his Lord and on his Messiah and on one of his best, on probably his best friend, because he was scared for his own skin. And so we see Peter saying, I'm going fishing to his friends. It's Tamano saying, I'm done being a disciple. I give up. I can't do it anymore. Jesus has said to Peter, you're going to be fisher of men. You're going to go out and help me win souls. And Peter had been, had been trying to follow Jesus for several years, but now the result of his denial, the pain that he's feeling, the, the, the hurt in his heart has all but made him give up. What had changed here was Peter's view of himself. He'd gone from being proud and self-confident 
to denying that he even knew Jesus, showed his true identity as a coward, as a person who was more concerned about taking care of his own skin than standing up for a friend who is truly in need. And Simon Peter felt shame. He felt guilt. And the exchange now between Jesus and Peter, Jesus is really saying to Peter, Peter, I know you're broken. I get it. I understand you're not as strong as you thought. In fact, I know that about you, and I know even more about that than, about you than that, Peter. But I love you. And you belong to me. You need to put down that shame. You need to set it aside because my grace is sufficient for you. I think shame is keeping some of us away from Jesus this morning. I think we look at our hearts, we look at our lives, we say, if God really knew who I was, he wouldn't love me. The love of Jesus may cover everybody else's sins, but it certainly doesn't cover mine. I've been absolutely awful. I've been an abject failure as a father. I've been a a terrible wife. I've been a dishonest person all of my life. I've only been out to take care of myself at the expense of others. If God really knew what was in my heart, he would not have any grace for me. And Jesus says, friend, just he says to Peter, lay it down. My grace is so much more infinite than your shame. Shame may feel more spiritual to us. We might be Uh, in a sense, bending the knee and saying, I'm not worthy to receive his grace. But friends, do you see that it's unbelief? Do you see that it is just as much an act of rebellion as being in denial about the resurrection? Do you understand that your heart is just as hard as if you were just living in doubt? Because what you say is my sin is more powerful than the forgiveness of God. A few years ago, I was going through a, a spiritual uh, somewhat of a spiritual crisis. No, I was going through a spiritual crisis in my life, and I didn't tell a whole lot of people about it. Um, but I, was, I spent some time with a counselor who I really respect and appreciate, and we were talking about this, this whole area of shame. And, uh, and, and he was just letting me talk, and he basically was letting me you know, kind of dig my own grave, so to speak. Counselors are really kind of sick people like that. But um, uh, if, if you like your counselor, they're not doing a very good job. But um, we were, we're on this thing of shame. That just sunk into somebody who's now thinking that counseling is getting better for him. Um, and, and, I, and, I, and I stopped him in mid-sentence at one point, and I said, intellectually, if somebody walked into this office right now and said, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, died on the cross for your sins, rose from the grave, and is the only means of salvation for all of mankind, I would say yes. Intellectually, I understand that. I get it. But if you ask me what's in my heart today, I would have to say, I don't know. Because I feel this burden of shame. And we talked for a minute more, and I said, but I think what you're trying to tell me is that, that living in my shame is sinful and rebellion against God. And he said, that's exactly right. See, I'd like to put a nice picture on it. I'd like to say, well, you know, it's just me wrestling with my spirituality. No, it's not. It's me rejecting the lordship of Jesus. And you might be here this morning saying, I'm not worthy. You know what, friend? Look around you. However many people are in this room, 250, 300 people in this room, they're not a worthy person in this room. They're a worthy person walking around on the planet. God makes you worthy in Christ Jesus. Put down your shame. Come to the Savior. It's the whole reason why he died. As Andy said, as deep as our guilt is, so much deeper is the grace of God. There's one other response I want to share with you this morning, back in Matthew 28. And it's the response of living in faith. Listen to verses 5 through 10. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. 
Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. This morning did not start well for these women. They were on their way to try to offer some amount of dignity to their fallen hero, to their, to their dead leader, to the one who, whom they thought was going to be the Savior. They're not exercising faith. They're simply broken in their sorrow, and they want to do something that in some way would, would, would be redemptive in this whole terrible tragedy. And then they meet the angel, and they hear the good news, and they're given instruction to go and tell the disciples. So they leave the tomb after receiving this news, receiving instructions to go and tell. And then Matthew says they leave with fear and great joy. I would say that's not a tremendous amount of faith. <laughs> you know, fear of, uh, do you think he's right? Yeah, well, Jesus wasn't in there. What do you think? I don't know. Scared me to death. How did you feel? I was scared too. I saw the soldiers laying on the ground. I didn't know what was going to happen. You, know, you could just sense this, this anticipation, hope beyond hope and not certain. That's not a heck of a lot of fear in my, or a heck of a lot of, uh, of faith in my book. <laughs> That's like just a tiny little bit of maybe it's true. Let, let, what do we have to lose? Let's go. That's the faith with which we meet Christ. It's not much, but it's a start. And on the way, they meet the risen Jesus. And what do they do? They fall down and they worship. And then they go on their way to tell what they have seen. For disciples of Jesus, faith and worship commingle. Sometimes you can't tell where one starts and the other stops. But our creed goes something like this, I believe, therefore I worship. And these were the first missionaries of Jesus. These were the first folks to go and to spread the good news. And for the last 2,000 years, faith in the risen Lord Jesus is always demonstrated in his disciples by love for God and a going and a telling, or a love and a compassion for others. Go and tell can take on a wide range of meanings. It could be somebody who stands up and preaches like I'm doing this morning. And people are doing, men and women are doing all over the world this morning, proclaiming in front of groups of people that Jesus is risen. It could be as simple as sitting down with a cup of coffee at Starbucks with a friend and talking about the claims of Christ. But you cannot disconnect faith and worship and love for God and love for others. It all goes together. Go and tell is a reaction of faith. We bow before Christ and we worship him and that our immediate concern is for those around us. How can we help them know Jesus? On Tuesday of this week, I'm going to get to uh, fulfill a lifelong dream. I'm going to be walking around Augusta to practice around the masters. And uh, if you had the gift of prophecy and you could look into the future and say, Tom, let me tell you what Tuesday is going to be like. Not only are you going to get to walk around and, and watch, but they're actually going to invite you inside the ropes. And you're going to get to play a little bit and hit the ball. And you're going to get to talk to Ernie Els and Phil Mickelson and, and all these great golfers. It's going to be the most amazing day of your life, golf-wise. Or there's somebody in St. Louis that um, needs to hear about Jesus. And you could stay behind and, and never get to go to the Masters and talk to that person. Wouldn't even be close wouldn't even be close. For the disciple of Jesus, even when we wrestle with doubt, and even when we wrestle with our shame at times, there's something so incredibly beautiful 
about the risen Jesus and his grace for us and his mercy for us.